0: And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya that belong to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, before we jump into Acts 2 and that text, uh, I want to pray for us. So let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we we need your Holy Spirit, and we long for the power of the Spirit to define our church. And as we open your word this morning, I pray, Spirit, would you move in us? We ask in Jesus' name for Christ's glory. Amen. Well, these verses have always felt kind of threatening to me as a Christian, and when I became a pastor, they became uh, even more threatening that I've never experienced anything close to what Acts 2 describes. I've never watched tongues, like, fly into a worship service, let alone, like, flaming tongues fly into a worship service. I've never experienced that. I've never once spoken another language uh, uh, with perfection in my entire life. And so when I went to China and I, I listened to Mandarin, I never understood a word of what was happening. And even when I tried to speak Mandarin, it didn't go very well. People just looked at me like, stop trying. You're not making any sense to us. So I've never, I've never experienced anything like Acts 2. And maybe if you're a Christian, you, you kind of wonder some of the same things. Why haven't I experienced something like this? Do I even have the Holy Spirit if I haven't experienced something like this? Or if you're a Christian, you might hear uh, Acts 2 and think, I've never, I've never seen anything like this. Right? God's never made a dramatic intervention like this in your own life, or you've never seen that. It's a belief it doesn't make sense because you haven't, like probably most of us in this room who are Christians, seen a dramatic intervention of God into to the world. Whatever our individual reactions are to this text, I think we all have the same, one of the same reactions, which is, this is some weird stuff, right? Like flaming tongues and a dramatic wind and like spontaneous language. Like this is weird stuff. So what's happening here? And more importantly, why is this happening? Well, just to remind you, we're spending 2018 as a church reflecting on who we are, why we exist, what our mission is, who we are called to be. And that that means we're spending a good portion of this year as a church on the book of Acts. In this passage, Acts 2, God is launching his church into the mission he has for them. And as weird as Acts 2 is for us, that's what's happening here. And God is doing very intentional works through his Holy Spirit to launch his church into the mission that we are called to live into. And there are things here we cannot miss through all the weirdness and strangeness. That's the first thing I don't want us to miss, is that as a church, to accomplish our mission, we we need someone else. And we want to start this week where we were last week, which is Acts Chapter One. You really cannot understand Acts two, what we just read, without understanding Acts chapter one. In Acts chapter one, it, Jesus was very clear about his expectations for the church as they began their mission. So I want to go back there for a moment. Acts chapter one, verses four and five, what Jesus says to his disciples about their role as they wait to launch this mission. Here what Jesus uh, or what Luke records. And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them. Not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Which he said, you heard from me, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, Jesus sort of looks at his disciples and, and says to them what my grandmother would say to me whenever I walked into the room that no one was allowed to go into in her house. And I don't know if your grandparents like, had a room like that where there was furniture no one was allowed to sit on. There was uh, things that were not allowed to be touched. It was, like, it was just like a room no one could go into. That was sort of like if I walked into that room, it was like, don't do anything. Don't touch anything. Don't move. Don't speak. Just stay, just wait. Just stay right there. Don't move. And that's sort of what Jesus does to the disciples. He orders them not to go anywhere and not to do anything. But he says to wait for the promise of the Father, to wait for the Holy Spirit. And this is where I think our struggle in the American context with the Holy Spirit begins, right? Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you cannot do what I want you to do. You don't have it in you, so don't do anything. And we, we disagree. A few years ago, Lisa Gottlieb, a psychotherapist, wrote an article in the New York Times uh, magazine, which was reflecting on why people are going to therapy less than they did maybe 40, 50 years Ago, and, and the article is about what psychotherapists were beginning to do to try to attract new clients, get more people in. And, and what Gottlieb and other psychotherapists had begin, begun to discover was that people were changing their reasons for why they wanted to go to therapy. And so she reflected on this. This is what she said. So no one wants to buy therapy anymore, Truffaut said. Another psychotherapist um, by the name of Truffaut told me they want to buy a solution to a problem. This is something Trufo discovered in her own private practice of 18 years, during which she saw a shift from people who were unhappy and wanted to understand themselves better to people who would come in because they wanted someone else or something else to change, she said. I'd see fewer and fewer people coming in and saying, I want to change. And what Gottlieb goes on to say is our culture has kind of undergone a massive shift, whereas 40, 50 years ago, people would come into therapy saying, something's wrong with me. And I need to change, right? The problem is inside of me, and something's broken. I need—what is it? Help me discover. But now she says and said people have the opposite assumption, right? I'm fine. I'm—I'm I'm the solution. The problems are all around me. It's the people around me. It's the circumstances around me. And—and and if you can change the people around me and the circumstances around me, or help me deal with those things better, then—then um, then I'll be able to do what I know I can do. In Acts Acts 2, Acts 1, Jesus has the opposite assumption of us. The problem is inside of us. We are insufficient. There's something wrong with us, which is why we need someone else. And I felt, this is something I've been wrestling with a lot, is I thought, you know, in January we have existed for three years as a church, and I thought a lot about what, what if I what's going well, what's not, what's happening. And I I think as I have wrestled on where we're at as a church, I think one of the greatest sins in my own life that's been lived out in the life of this congregation is me thinking that I can do it alone. That if I just work hard enough, think long enough, come up with the right idea, make the right change, then I can make anything happen. And I've made so many mistakes in, in this. And I see this a lot in the American church. Our greatest sin is that we don't think we need anyone else. We think we have enough within our, ourselves. And I hear Jesus' commands to the disciples in Acts 1, don't do anything, don't touch anything, don't go anywhere. And I think, yeah, that's, that doesn't apply to me. I'm the exception. And yet, church, our, our fundamental conviction as we, as we lead out into who God calls us to be is that we cannot do the mission God has for us without the Holy Spirit. We need someone else. The disciples, they knew that. They knew they needed the Spirit, which is why they waited. And when we get to Acts 2, verse 1, they're all in the same place, and they are, are waiting. They're praying. They're not leaving. They're not doing anything. So how do we do that? How do we be a church that knows, like, we, we know we can't do this alone. We know we need the Spirit. We know we need someone else. And how do you know in your own life? You're a person who's not trying to live in your own strengths, your own capacities, your own abilities, but you are trying to live a life that could only be defined and empowered by the Spirit of God. And I think the best diagnostic question for whether or not you're trying to live your own life, your own power, your own gifts, versus the power of the Spirit is if or is determined on how bold your prayers are. That if you want to know how dependent on the spirit you are, ask the question: how bold are my prayers? Because I think the boldness of our prayers reflect how much we think we're in charge. If you pray pretty small things, the reality is there are things you know you can accomplish, you know you can do with enough work, and you just hope maybe God gives you a little boost. But the reality is, like, you can do those things. But that's not what the disciples do. Jesus had said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on you in a unique and powerful way. And so they waited, and they prayed boldly in light. Of that promise, And friends, Jesus has made incredible promises to you individually as a Christian and to us corporately as a church. And the disciples, they believed those promises and they prayed those promises. And so you think Matthew 28, Jesus' last words to the disciples were that his, his personal presence was going to be with the church, empowering the church always till the end of the age. He said, I have all authority and all power has been given to me and I'm with you, the church. It's an incredible promise. In Acts one, what we looked at last year, Jesus or last week, Jesus said, "You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. The gospel is going to go out into all of the world." That's an incredible promise. Jesus promises in Acts one; he's running history. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He's controlling the future of this world, and that his church will spread his hope and his redemption and his his resurrection life into all of the world, and that he's personally available to us. Those are his promises, and so we should, as a church, pray boldly. And this will be a theme throughout Acts. Jesus' disciples' response to the promise of Jesus is bold prayers, that they pray as, as theologian Will Willimon um, defines prayer. Prayer is the bold, even arrogant efforts on the part of the community, the church, to hold God to his promises. Are your prayers bold? Do you hold God to his promises? Just get on my soapbox for a minute. Today, like, there are too many Christians, churches, that are entirely negative about the state of the church in the world or about the culture or about what's happening. And listen, I'm not naive. I'm not saying things get easier. We'll be all, you know, roses and sunshine here. But here, listen, you read the Bible and you lean into the promises Of Jesus, And we have nothing to be afraid of. We have no reason to be pessimistic. Go and pray to the Jesus who runs history and said, my mission is going to go into all the world. And the gospel is going to save people into all of the world. The church should be an optimistic bunch, not because we have the tools and resources within ourselves, but because we are leaning on the spirit of God to accomplish only what God wants to accomplish. And the church fails. And a lot of churches, and listen, I've done this, have failed when we try to instead make ourselves the solution to the world's problem. And let me just say, there are enough communities and organizations and, and places where people gather because they think they are the solution to the world's problem. That is not the church. We do not gather as people who think we are the answers. We are the, no, we gather as people who know we need someone else. We need the Spirit of God. We are a community po- full of people saying, I am the problem. The problem's inside of me, I need someone else. And that, if we live that out as a community, that is a radical departure from most of this world and I think would be a fresh air to a culture that needs a humble people who know they need someone else. So point one, we need someone else. Uh, Point two, then, our our mission is is public. All right, now to the weird stuff in Acts 2. Right? the spirit descends on the disciples and does so by like these tongues that are on fire like coming in and resting on the disciples and they begin speaking languages they don't know so what is what is going on now, before we push into what's going on we have to, like in the Bible there's two types of tongues speaking um, and, and in first Corinthians there's a type of tongue speaking where the people who speak the languages, no one uh, knows the languages, no one understands the languages sort of. Um, uh, But that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that it's clear the tongues that are spoken here is the languages are known by the people that hear them. They can understand the languages. And so what's happening here is the Spirit descends on the disciples to miraculously start speaking languages that they do not know. And that immediately raises two questions. One is why. Why is this happening? And two is can we actually believe this? As modern people with science, like, come on, flaming tongues, language, like, seriously, do you believe this? Tim? And before we get to the why, we probably have to do, can we actually believe this? Can we be credible, you know, intellectual people and believe that this actually happened? And I, let me tackle that first. And, and the first thing we understand about this moment, Acts 2, is that um, this is happening in the, mag- in the middle of a major public event within Jerusalem, the Feast of Pentecost. And so what this means is that there are tens of thousands of people who have crowded into Jerusalem from all over the world, so it's a very public event, it's a very packed event. So think like in our own uh, our own day, old Shawnee days and Shawnee or, or Boulevardia downtown Kansas City, there would have been tens of thousands of witnesses to what's happening. Here. But, but even more than that, you have to understand the church was the most controversial thing of its day. From uh, the moment Jesus died and, and was raised to uh, for the next 30, 40, 50 years, this was a major point of tension within the Middle Eastern world. And if the church was just going around making up stories about how they started, um, that would be very difficult to keep going. It just would just be difficult to keep that lie going in such a public event. But even more than that, the one thing you need to understand is that the church suddenly and without a whole lot of effort had Christians all over the world within a few decades of Jesus' death and resurrection. And you have to wonder, how did that happen? Well, Acts 2 is explaining how that happened, is that there was a moment in Jerusalem when people who were all over the world came into Jerusalem, they heard the gospel in their own language, and they went back to their hometowns and started churches and believed in Christ. And the church, in one moment, went from a few dozen disciples to a few thousand believers all over the world. And I get it. This is a weird story. It's hard to believe for us. We've never seen anything like this. But, I mean, how else do you explain how the church isn't just sort of a local weird cult in the Middle East, but actually is a, is a religion that has 2 billion people over every continent in all of the world? Like, how do you explain that? And Acts 2 is explaining that. It's the Spirit of God in a miraculous way to push the church forward miraculously and quickly into all of the world. You can believe this happens. This is credible. So that's one. Can we really believe this? Two, why? Like, why, why is this happening? And, and just to summarize, to, to to say, okay, this is what's happening here is the Holy Spirit is miraculously giving the disciples uh, a languages to speak they don't know, so that everyone who's come into Jerusalem from all over the world can hear the gospel spoken in their own language. And if that's If that's the first work of the Holy Spirit being poured out in power onto the church, that has a couple of implications for Christianity, for our mission as a church. And the first is that the Spirit's working out the gospel produces beautiful diversity. And here's what I mean by that. Lamine Sana wrote a book. He's a Yale academic. He's an African. Um, And he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity?, um, and in the book, one of his primary points is that Christianity, unlike most religions or every other religion, every other kind of worldview way of seeing the world, Christianity does not have a cultural center. Like you can't go to a place where like that's where, if you're going to be Christian, you have to go there. That's just, there isn't a place like that. But that's not true if you were to become a Muslim. So if later today you're like, Tim... Flaming Tongues, I'm out, like they can't do the church thing anymore. I'm going to become a Muslim. To become a Muslim, you would have to enter into a different culture. You'd have to learn Arabic because uh, Muslims believe that the Quran is not the word of God unless it's in Arabic. So you cannot read the Quran in English. You need to learn Arabic. You need to learn a particular culture. And more than that, there's a clear Islamic cultural center of the world. And so Lamin Salam points out that Christianity, it's not like that. But today, the church is fastest growing and most influential in the, the global south, in South America, in Africa, and in parts of Asia, not in the United States, right? We're not the capital of Christianity. And if you want to go to the capital of Christianity, you can't because there isn't one. Now, we as Christians, we believe you can have the word of God in English, in Mandarin, <laughs> in Spanish. Whatever, whatever Bible you're holding, in the, it's probably, my guess, is not in Greek or Hebrew, is the word of God. We believe that because we are a religion that started with the spirit of God translating the gospel gospel into all languages. There's not a cultural center for Christianity. And that's that's really important because in our culture especially like we value diversity, multiculturalism, like uh, you know, racial diversity is very important to us. And yet, even within our framework from a western standpoint, diversity isn't really that diverse. Like to enter into our diversity, you have to become European white basically. And think of it like this. If you were to go to KU and you're an African Basically, you would have to strip almost all of your Africanness in order to fit in to KU. Right? So most Africans believe the world is supernaturally charged, that there are unseen realities that, that, that make up much of the world we see and, and uh, you know, drive the world much of the way the, the world goes. If you're an African, you believe that. But if you go to KU, you cannot believe that and fit in. They may want you, they want to like raise your flag. Is like we have people coming from all over the world, but if you're going to fit in and you're going to pass and you're going to be really fit into KU, you have to lose your Africanness and you have to become European to be our kind of diversity. That's not true of Christianity. To become a Christian, you do not have to become a European. You don't have to become an African. You don't have to become Middle Eastern. You, from within your own culture, hear the gospel in your own language and can receive it from your own culture. The Spirit produces great diversity. And according to Lamin Sana, that goes back to Acts 2, to this passage. And I'm not, I don't want to be naive here. I'm not going to say the church is like the best, uh, you know, diverse institution. We failed here. But I will say this. If you, if you want to see the end of racism and you care deeply about true diversity that doesn't flatten other cultures, I don't think it's too bold to say Christianity is your only hope. It has to be true or else one culture ultimately is better than all the rest. Because the only religion, the only way of seeing the world where the powerful work of God comes into all cultures, in all ethnicities, in all religions, or to to all races, is the work of the Spirit of God. Where every language, every culture, every ethnicity gets the gospel. It's the first work of the Spirit of God. It's to get the gospel into every language, every culture. And I would even say this, beyond this, the most diverse institutions in all the world today are those Christian institutions which have a very high theology of the Holy Spirit. You will not find more, more diverse institutions than churches that believe in the work of the Spirit. All right, point one, the Spirit produces beautiful diversity, um, in, or the gospel uh, enables the, through the Spirit to produce beautiful diversity. Second, the Spirit enables the gospel to speak uh, to ev- the heart of every culture. And what I mean by this is, <coughs> So if you become a Christian, like you don't have to join another culture because the gospel, it sort of, it speaks into your culture and it critiques your culture, but it affirms your culture at the same time. And so I don't, listen, if you're into underlining verses in your Bible, highlighting whatever, I think verse 11 is really important because this so defines what our mission as a church is and how people are struck by what's happening here. So everyone hears the gospel in their own language and this is what they, this is the response. So says, we hear them, we hear the disciples telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And the word tongue there, it's more than just language, it's like dialect. It's like the God, they're saying what we hear in our own, like in our own specific mode of communication, the gospel making sense. And this is important for us as a church, because the first work of the Spirit is of God is not an you know, ecstatic, powerful, individual experience that Christians have for themselves the first work of the Spirit of God is to make the beauty of the gospel known in every dialogue to every individual person the Spirit wants the gospel to be heard in every person's own language in their own cultural expression and understanding and that's why our mission as a church is public and not private why, why, why as a church we are not to be separated or set off set apart from the world and disconnected from the world. Our mission is public, to go into our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, and friends, and to live out a public expression of the gospel, to speak the gospel in a way that connects with Shawnee and Lenexa, greater Kansas City, our American culture. And because and, Acts 2, it's about more than just like speaking other languages, it's about the personal nature of how the gospel lands home in the heart of every person when they truly hear it. And this is something we can't miss, because when you read Acts 2 and you think, well, I've never experienced like flaming tongues coming and resting. On me, have I experienced the Holy Spirit? Well, what the Spirit is doing here, it's not about tongues of fire. It's about making the gospel real to individual people. That is the primary work of the Spirit, to make the work of God known to your own hearts. In the Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Spirit has done that with you. He's done that with you. If you're a Christian, the Spirit has made the gospel real to you. And think of it like this. Lately, I, I've been thinking about, like, personality types and personality tests. I'm fascinated by those things because they, they can, if they're good, they give you good insight to, you know, the ways you go about life, the good things you do, the bad things you do. And so the past few months, I've been thinking a lot about the Enneagram and the, that personality uh, test. And, and I learned a few months ago I'm a number three on the Enneagram, which is uh, Achiever or Performer. Um, and what that means is I love accomplishing things. I love accomplishing tasks, doing things, performing. And especially I love impressing other people when I accomplish or do um, something. That's kind of that's kind of my bent, how I'm wired. And, and so the shadow side of that reality is that I often wonder if I'm doing enough to impress other people. Have I accomplished enough to warrant the intention in the favor of other people? Have I oppressed people? Have, or enough uh, for other people? Do, do they like me enough? Have I done enough to show myself worthy in their eyes. And so I, I didn't know all that in high school. I didn't know that about myself. And yet, um, one reason I became a Christian is because um, of the communion table. And what the communion table did for me was there every week I was invited to, to eat with God, not because of my performance that week, not because I've impressed God with anything I've done, not because I was popular enough to be invited, but rather I'm, I'm invited in spite of my performance. I'm invited uh, regardless of how impressed, or let's be real, unimpressed God is with me. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to perform to get anything to go to this table. And, and when I begin to see that, the Spirit of God, like, uniquely spoke into my heart. Like, Tim, you can lay all that work, you know, lay all your doing down and just come. And it was that, that is the Spirit working on my heart, right? Speaking the gospel in my own dialogue, in my own tongue. So let me bring point one and point two together. The going, going public about your faith, having a public mission as a church, it's not about being really brilliant, having the best answer to every question about whether Christianity is true or not. Our public mission is founded on the fact that we believe the Spirit will make the gospel real to those we speak to and those who are around us. That is the Holy Spirit's work. And as the old saying goes, the church has used this for a long time. This is really good. It's we take the initiative as Christians, right? We want to speak the gospel, but the spirit has to put it in their own language. That's the work of the spirit. So we, we take the initiative, but we leave the results to God. And if you do that, listen, One, won't that make us more humble with people we try to share the gospel with as opposed to like shoving it down throats or arrogantly just wondering, how could people not be as brilliant as us and see what we see? No, it's like, listen. That's a work of the Spirit, and there's, there's mystery in that. And, of course, that would also lead us to pray boldly, wouldn't it? That God, bring the gospel to bear on those around us, on those we love, we care for. So our mission, it's public, right? The Spirit of God comes to make the gospel real in all tongues and dialects. Um, we need someone else, right? We need the Holy Spirit. And third, um, this is my favorite point, we, uh, we need what the Spirit alone offers, and so you get to the last verse and you're probably tempted just to kind of laugh off the last verse. When you get to the end and people see what the disciples are doing and like, they must be drunk. And so like, well, why? Like why drunkenness and why, you and know, I think it's easy to just sort of laugh that off. But that's actually, theologically this is very important. Um, because apparently having the Holy Spirit is similar to being drunk. And in case you think I, that's a stretch, Paul the Apostle actually makes the same point in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 5, Paul, writing to the church, says, do not be drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So biblically speaking, being filled with the Spirit is like being drunk. Now that you're all interested in what I'm about to say, uh, let's think about this together. And I love the way Tim Keller puts this. Um, So what is it about drunkenness and the Holy Spirit that melds so nicely together? Um, Well, and think about it. What does being drunk do for you? Thanks Greg. (laughs) It's fun. Uh, It's liquid courage, right? It emboldens you to do things. It gives you a fearlessness to do things you would otherwise not do. And Keller uses a phrase around drunkenness, which is it gives you a fearless joy, a joyful fearlessness. And the reason it does that is because alcohol is a depressant. It depresses reality for you, right? So when everything's sad, everything becomes fun, right? Because it depresses reality. It covers, it makes the world less real, which gives us courage to do things we would never otherwise do if we were seeing reality clearly. You get fearless because you do not see things clearly, which is why maybe some of you have woken up the next morning after a night of drinking, and uh, once reality became clear to you again, you began to wish that you had had less fearless joy the night before, less courage. And so the Spirit, likewise... I think gives this this fearless joy to us. But not because it depresses reality, not because it like it makes us glaze over to the world as it is, but because the Spirit puts you more in touch with reality, more in touch with the way things are. That when you hear this, when you have the Spirit of God, you hear the mighty works of God in your own language, the death and the resurrection of Jesus is not just theology or a belief statement you have, it's your whole world. Your whole world is death overcome by resurrection, that you begin to see not just that Jesus died, but he died for you. He saved you. He gave himself for you, to rescue you, to pull you away from death. You get more in touch with that reality, with the creator God who made you, who sees you, who loves you. And if that's true, right, if you have the love of God, which cannot be taken from you because it was given to you through Jesus on the cross, what can't you say? Who do you have to be afraid of? What can you lose? Who can mock you that's really going to matter in a billion years? When you have the Spirit, you have a joyful fearlessness to you. You can speak boldly. You can be mocked. You can share the gospel. You care less what others think. You have a courage, a fearlessness, a joy about you. And this is where we need correction because often when we think of the Holy Spirit, at least when I think of the Holy Spirit, we think of strange, intense personal experiences. But listen, anytime you have been become convinced that God loves you and that love cannot be taken from you, any time you've, you've looked at the cross and been moved to tears that God has covered all of your shame and all of your sin, any time you've just spoken the gospel out of a genuine heart to a friend who doesn't believe, any time you've done that, that is the work of the Spirit giving you a fearless joy to see the reality of this world as it truly is. So maybe, maybe you're here, you hear that, you're sitting there thinking, but I haven't had that experience. Like, that's not my experience, and I understand, and that's why, that's why we began where we began. Acts 1 and Acts 2, they go together. Because the, as, the message of Acts 2 is not, listen, here are the five things you do, and if you do those five things, then you get the Holy Spirit, right? If you pray boldly, and if you wait long enough, then the Spirit will come on you, and you, you, know, you get tongues, all that. That's not the message of Acts 2. Two Acts 1 and 2 go to, together, which is why Acts 1 starts with Jesus, with his disciples, reminding them all that he had done, all that he had taught them, that he had died for them, that he had given them, you know, he went to a cross for them, he went into a tomb for them, he rose from the dead for them, and then he stood with them and ascended to the right hand of God and said, listen, you, you are now going to be my witnesses to all of the world. And that's, that's where Acts 1 starts, is that Jesus, he died for you, he loves you, he gave himself for you, And now he has a mission for you. And he's gone to the right hand of God to send out the spirit of God for us to accomplish the mission he has for us. A mission to get the gospel into every dialect and every tongue and every tribe and every part of this world. So if you're not experiencing the spirit, the answer is not try harder. It's to go back to Jesus, to go back to the cross, to go back to you need someone else. You're not the solution. Your sinfulness and your brokenness are broken. It's the problem of this world. And the answer to a spirit-filled life is not the right practices or mechanisms. It is going to a life of trust in Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit is here now with us. Maybe not in flaming tongues right now, maybe not in a rushing wind, but he is here to do the same thing the Spirit did in Acts 2 to make the gospel real for you, to to give you a fearless joy. If you have eyes to see, if we have eyes to see, we need someone else. And he is here to give us power. Let us pray. Father God, I confess too often I, I think I'm enough and that I have what it takes. Would you forgive me for that, God? And I pray you would fill us, this church, with your spirit. That we would have a humility about us. That as we go about our ministry, the spirit would take our feeble efforts. And make the gospel beautiful and compelling. Believable to our community, to our families, to our neighbors, to our friends, and to us, God. Spirit, fill us with humble confidence. Remind us of our desperate need of your presence in our life. Would you give us courage and joy? Would you remind us of the depths of God's love for us? That we would be filled with boldness to go speak the good news of who Jesus is in every place you give us opportunity. Spirit, we ask, fall fresh on us. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.